When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be true with the past, but the past is not true with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky. Here on the Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're hacking our way through miles of untamed South American jungle in search of profound truths and ancient civilizations. Personally, I love the jungle. I think it's full of erotic elements. What do you think, Genevieve? Well, there is some sort of harmony here, Scott. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. Wow. So I guess we'll just have to agree (laughs) to disagree on that one. But maybe we'll settle our differences over the two jungle adventures in this week's episode. Want to tell us about those? Oh, sure. The new James Gray film, The Lost City of Z, based on David Grant's best-selling book, tells the story of Percy Fawcett, a turn-of-the-century British explorer who made multiple attempts to find an ancient city in the Amazon. While on a perilous mission to map out a border between Brazil and Bolivia, Fawcett discovers evidence of what he believes was a great lost civilization in the heart of the jungle. His obsessive quest courts danger from the extreme heat, from disease and deadly animals, and from indigenous peoples who are suspicious of outsiders. In order to achieve his elusive goal, Fawcett has to contend with nature first, and his struggles were called director Werner Herzog and Burden of Dreams, Les Blank's documentary about the making of Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Both men are inspired and a little bit crazy, and their actions say a lot about the vision and hubris of Westerners trying to conquer an untamable territory. Yes. It's like I was saying, Genevieve, the jungle's great. (laughs) Uh, Especially if you're experiencing it in an air-conditioned theater or in the comfort of your own home, just as I experienced Burden of Dreams and the Lost City of Z. So catch Jungle Fever with us (laughs) after the break. At the age of 37, German filmmaker Werner Herzog has a worldwide reputation as one of the most talented directors to come out of the movement known as the New German Cinema. In 1977, he ventured deep into the upper Amazon jungle of Peru, scouting locations for a surrealistic adventure film he'd been planning for years, Fitzcarraldo. From the beginning, he expected it to be an extremely difficult project, but it wouldn't be the first time he'd risked everything for new images. In 1971, for instance, he came to the upper Amazon to film Aguirre, Wrath of God, and he and his crew spent weeks living on rafts in the middle of the river. Some critics feel that Herzog seeks out physical danger to test himself. 
Herzog insists he's a professional taking reasonable risks to create images no one has ever seen before. This time, however, the dangers were so extreme that he invited filmmaker Les Blank to shoot a documentary of Fitzcarraldo being made, as if he were afraid that the documentary might be the only record of his epic adventure. Join with Herzog, Klaus Kinski, and 800 Peruvian Indians as they risk their lives and their sanity. It's hard to say exactly when it happened, but at some point, Werner Herzog, one of the major figures in New German cinema, became Werner Herzog, the pop culture legend. Perhaps it was the time he ate his own shoe after losing a bet with Errol Morris. Or perhaps it was the time he got shot in the middle of an interview and said, it was not a significant bullet. But whatever the case, the go-to footage of Werner Herzog are those scenes in Les Blank's Burden of Dreams when he talks about the jungle in floridly despairing terms, about the birds and the trees screaming in misery, about how God, if he exists, created the land in anger, about overwhelming misery and overwhelming fortification, overwhelming growth and overwhelming lack of order. <laughs> Werner Herzog is a fun character that we like to play, and often Werner Herzog is a fun character Werner Herzog likes to play. Yet it's wonderful to see Burden of Dreams in full, just to understand those famous Herzog quotes in context, because they arrive near the end of one of the most notoriously difficult productions in film history. Inspired by a Peruvian rubber baron named Carlos Fitzcarrald, Herzog set out to tell the story of a turn-of-the-century adventurer who longed to build an opera house in the Amazon jungle and bring Caruso to sing. To make this dream happen, Fitzcarraldo has to make a fortune in the rubber business, a plan that involves employing local Indians to drag a huge riverboat over an isthmus separating one riverway from another. The real Fitzcarraldo took the boat apart and carried it over the hill in pieces. Herzog, on the other hand, employed Aguaruna laborers to drag a 320-ton riverboat up a 40-degree incline using a primitive pulley system. Is this inspiration? Is this insanity? Is this exploitation? Les Blank's documentary suggests it's all three. There are so many astonishing moments in Burden Dreams. My favorite is the engineer of the pulley system predicting a 70% chance of catastrophe and Herzog still opting to press on. But one of the ideas that stays with me is embedded in the title. Herzog believed and still believes that the conditions of a production make an indelible mark on the finished film. Time and time again, Herzog could have made Fitzcarraldo easier on himself, his crew, and his financiers, and he always took the hard route because it served the Sisyphean vision he was trying to express. He refuses to compromise. He wants to know, as an artist, what it's like to challenge nature at its most forbidding and stubbornly refuse to yield to it. And Blank's camera is there to witness the madness. Of course we are challenging nature itself, and it hits back. It just hits back, that's all, and that's grandiose about it, and we have to, to accept that it is much stronger than we are. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic, I see it more full of obscenity. It's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery, and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing, they just screech in pain. So just general thoughts here. What did you think of Burden of Dreams? 
I think it's fascinating. I had never seen it before. And as you said in your keynote, it's really interesting to see the, the legend of Werner Herzog taking shape. And there's just there's so much in this documentary to pick apart. But I'm curious, because this is your suggestion, Scott, mm-hmm. and I, I am curious your thoughts on it, because as someone who is constantly dismissing extra-textual information <laughs> yes. in discussing film, mm-hmm. is this not a film that is entirely extra-textual? Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, a do- <laughs> it's a documentary, so so we are talking about Les but it's Blanks. a documentary about a We're film. We're talking about Les Blanks' vision <laughs> of how Fitzcarraldo is made, so it's it's a totally totally fine. Okay. I like to know about how movies are made, especially when they're... This when they're impression insane. Is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when at every step, it's like, why Why are you doing it that way? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, I kind of came away with it wondering if there was some sort of underlying philosophy that the effort he put into it would show in the final product in the film through some sort of maybe mystical force or if Herzog just doesn't know how to make a movie any other way, just, just to go out there and do it. I mean, there's not what planning there is all kind of falls apart, but it almost seems like as distressed as he is by the jungle and, and as beaten down as he gets, it almost seems like this is kind kind of business as usual for him this is just how you make movies yeah i mean i think it's uh it's like method filmmaking right just, like, <laughs> just get into the into the muck um i happen to speaking of extra textuals i watched an interview with herzog about his experience on on burden of dreams and one insight he did have into his process on this was that he never liked to treat landscapes as scenery. Mm. He liked to treat them as sort of like inner landscapes. And that, that involved like really being in the soup. You know, it's a philosophy of filmmaking that I happen to agree with, which is I, I do think... Uh, you don't think the same reaction with just Klaus Kinski against a green screen? Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right, exactly. Like the conditions of a production do stain it and do give it a certain texture, a quality that you can't achieve in a studio. And so I think there's that. And there's also a thing, I think, uh, an artistic impulse uh, on Herzog's part to put himself experientially through what Fitzcarraldo went through. And, and I'm reminded a little bit of the movie Hearts of Darkness about the making of Apocalypse Now, which is a very similar case in that you could make an argument that Burden of Dreams and Hearts of Darkness were better versions of the same material than the films that they're about in a way that they tell essentially the same story except with the filmmaker in the in the lead role well and also we talk about herzog kind of intending to not not quite replicate the experience of the characters in his story but you know honor it by going through it himself in the filmmaking process but there's a huge added layer to that in the actual making of a film because like and we see it again and again in burden of dreams like he's not just wrangling natives for one shot he's doing it over and over and over again and there's a you know something's off here they're trying to capture magic hour and there's just this added level of difficulty in making a film and all of the added moving parts that come with that that go beyond just whatever you know heady philosophical whatever you want to you want to put on this experience yeah and i think that not to get extra textual but i did mm -hmm. read that blank was very frustrated during the making of the film and and he kind of hated it and like through that lens i totally understand why because it's like you're making a film here like you're not going through this experience you're you're making something and there's steps that need to be taken and it just i can see it being very very frustrating from the perspective of another filmmaker to watch a filmmaker go through this or, or the or the financier <laughs> yeah. which one or the, or, or the actors or the yeah. or the crew members or the uh, indigenous people uh, yeah i mean it is everyone is put through the ringer in this in this thing and it's right there in the title burden of dreams but i tell you i was really touched by Herzog's quote 
you know, I guess it's toward the beginning of the film when things first went awry with, with Jason Robards coming down with some horrible <laughs> illness and then the Mick Jagger dropping out and uh, production costs mounting and, and no real clear way forward. And, you know, he's asked if he wants to leave the project and he I, thinks, I think I know the quote you're about to cite can I guess yeah <laughs> is it if I abandoned this project I would be a man without dreams that's right <laughs> if I would be a man without dreams I mean that's a remarkable quote I mean that that commitment to it and you sense that as much as he bleep talks the jungle <laughs> that there's there are some shots of him in action that are just so exciting and adventurous I mean you've mm-hmm. got him you know, playing soccer with the natives. And there's another shot of him, one of my favorite shots in the movie, where he's on top of one of the steamships as it's veering off into like, you know, know, the woods, a a bank, and he's smoking a cigarette and he's like dodging all these branches that are coming toward him as the riverbank is destroying his ship. But it's just like, he's in the mix. And it's just, it feels like that is the type of film that he wants to make. And if you look at his work overall... You know, he's he's gone to some pretty crazy lengths to get movies made. I mean, he had a movie called Heart of Glass where he hypnotized the whole cast. Yeah, I mean, as contradictory as it sounds, kind of being out of his element is Herzog in his element. Because, I mean, this is not his first trip to the jungle. He's done Agira before this, which Mm -hmm. we talked about in an earlier episode. Even Dwarfs Started Small does not look like a pleasant shoot. It's like some sort of strange (laughs) island he went to for that. I mean, yeah. And um, he's still doing it. His movie, what was it, last year, Into the Inferno, that he like went to North Korea and, you know, into volcanoes and stuff yeah i mean he's, he encounters at the end of the world he went he was traipsing about antarctica he so went, he went to new orleans oh that's that's <laughs> fine i like new orleans <laughs> yeah you know he likes to be in, in the mix and I, I do I, I honestly do think it shows but i still i mean it's been a while since i've seen Fitzcarraldo, and i i do i do admire it and it is full of beauty and majesty and and all the things that he i think is trying to capture all the things you see him trying to capture in Burden of Dreams, but I think Burden of Dreams is, is the pure expression of, of the essence of the material than the finished product. I can't put one over the other because I like them both so much. I'll take the wishy-washy person. I love that there are these companion pieces. I, lo- yeah. I, I love that you can watch one and then the other and, and, and see them reflect off of each other in some really interesting ways. And Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, again, that's still, I guess, also the Hearts of Darkness Apocalypse Now dynamic, sure. too. But it is fascinating. Although I think this is a better film than Hearts of Darkness, which I like, but hmm. I, you can book, put these on a shelf as bookends, whereas I feel like Hearts of Doctrines is a really good DVD supplement, I guess, uh, to Apocalypse Now. But, that's uh, a little... That, <laughs> no, nah, I'm not going to go that. I'm gonna, that you've, gone, you've gone too far, Keith. Okay, <laughs> uh, but but I, I will say, I mean, let, let's blank. There's a level, level of artistry yes. in the documentary, in the filmmaking here, that's not quite present in Hearts of Darkness, but is more so. Hmm. It's more like Mano, Mano La Mancha would be more of like a, what you're saying Hearts of Darkness is like, right? Man, you mean Lost in La Mancha. Lost in La Mancha. I can break into the impossible the, dream and any moment if you want me to. (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, Lost in La Mancha. Boy, howdy. So, uh, as I said in the intro, Herzog's monologues near the end of the film are a big part of his legend as a public figure. Uh, what, what did you think of them in context? I mean, they, they make a lot more sense in context. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say like they're they're inherently nonsensical, but like, as you said, it's like at the end of, God, almost like four years, I, I think, at, the, at this point, or th- at least three solid years of trying to get this made. And like, he's at the end of his rope. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's completely understandable for him to talk the way he does. And the fact that he does it so floridly and poetically is what makes that character of Werner Herzog so easy to latch on to but the actual emotions behind it I think are completely understandable from what we've seen him go through and again I keep digging in extra textual things I mean <laughs> that those monologues were things that Les Blank had picked up on 
earlier in that Herzog mm-hmm. performed in a way. Oh. So, so these, this is him. Um, well, then I take it all back. Play, playing the character of Werner Herzog, and it, it doesn't always come through in this film for for obvious reasons. And I'm not an expert because there's a lot of films I've only seen a couple of other movies. But Les Blank's a very playful filmmaker, and this doesn't necessarily lend itself to that kind of playfulness. But it does have moments like that, and and the sort of terrifying moment where you think someone has died mm-hmm. as well. Oh my gosh! Uh, it's yeah. kind of kind of a horrible prank. You know, I've seen this movie before, but I'd, I'd forgotten that too. And, and and the movie builds up to the point where it creates a sense of unsafe conditions that. It, it's completely plausible that someone's going to die on set. Yeah. It's a bizarre that no one did die. Right. Yeah, yeah, like to the point where at the at the very end when they're showing all the the Polaroids, all the photographs that have been taken, like for a brief moment until I actually like went through in my head and remember that, okay, they would have said something if someone had actually died. I thought those were like people that had died during the making of this film that they were memorializing because, I don't know, I guess we're just in an age now where I see black and white photos and I think dead. But, uh, but yeah. yeah, like it's kind of amazing that no one did die. Yeah, it was like a, a strange resurrection though that shot of one of the workers just being just totally submerged in mud you think he's just been flattened yeah and then he goes in the he's water blood he's blood on in terms of makeup blood but yeah, yeah. And he just and it just he goes in the water and it all <laughs> and it all just kind of dissipates but there's another element to it too and this is this is on Les blank and his priorities as a filmmaker which is that you know herzog the system in w- that he was given that was going to be 70% chance catastrophe was not the system that was used after that guy left. Uh, they, they installed a much more stable and powerful pulley system than the one we see in the, in the movie. It just serves the movie's purpose to make it seem more dangerous than it was and to make Herzog seem more reckless than he was, which makes it me kind of surprised that, that Herzog would concede to <laughs> continuing to work with Les Blank and having, you know, I don't know. And so there's all these levels of filmmakers with their own agenda and you know kind of a, a fudging of the truth or a massaging of the truth to tell different types of different stories you know that's the story Les Blank wants to tell and the story Herzog wants to tell and they're not necessarily the same story it's not only my dreams my belief is that all these dreams are are yours as well and the only distinction between me and you is that I can articulate them and that is what poetry or painting or literature or filmmaking is all about. It's as simple as that. And I, I make films because I have not learned anything else. And I know I can do it to a certain degree. <laughs> and it is my duty because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are. And we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Well, I guess it will play a little bit more once we bring in Lost City of Z, but I am fascinated by how those quotes reveal Herzog's perspective on on nature and how it operates and how human beings might relate to it or or work their way through it. Um, I mean, because that's sort of the major contrast between these two films. But I guess we'll get get to that in a little bit, but it is interesting to see him talking about nature as being chaos and murder and not harmonious but a place of just overgrowth and Don't forget misery misery, misery. The, awesome. the trees are in misery yes. the birds are in misery you know it's a fascinating point of view i mean he's not wrong no you know and i think that is a and i say this as someone who avoids nature whenever yeah. possible but <laughs> but I, I think it's much easier to romanticize nature when you haven't spent a lot of time in it against your will mm-hmm. and i think as someone who has spent a lot of time in a very trying part of nature. I I think that, I mean, 
it seems like Herzog probably kind of already had this view of nature, but like this experience had to have calcified that for him or intensified it. But for like, sure. dude, nature sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and, and, and th- keep in mind, I mean, he is approaching it with eyes wide open and with, like, I think, more a much richer understanding of, of it than, you know, the characters in A Gear of the Wrath of God. I mean, he's not wearing heavy armor. He's a guy who likes to be out there and getting into the mix. And we, we see him ha- having, I mean, he's in a, he is in his element in a way, but the, that element is still, you know, extraordinarily hostile in this case, and especially over the burden of however many years it took to get this thing finished. That brings up something that I kind of wanted to talk about, which the film spent a little bit of time on, but not too much, which is the differences in the camps between the indigenous people and the filmmaking crew. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I really like that Blank kind of engages with the fact that there are two different kind of standards of living within this already rough environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Herzog's defense of it is very interesting. I don't know to what extent I buy it. But um, I'm curious what you guys think of that. I mean, I think it's troubling. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, their justification is that while they're paying a pittance to the locals, they're they're making twice as much as they would under other other circumstances. But that twice as much is not nearly what anybody else in the film crew is making. So they are able to exploit you know, dozens upon dozens of laborers at a very reasonable cost, I would say, in under very dangerous conditions to make this movie. And so uh, I think that's definitely troubling and something that the film itself finds troubling, too. I mean, think about Burden of Dreams. The burden is not just on Herzog. It's it's also on people who don't have as much control over it, who are being... uh, exploited. You know, Herzog will go on about how these are the last real Indians we'll ever see or something like that. But uh, holding that point of view, it's kind of hard to justify bringing a film crew into this environment at all. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's seems concerned about the end of a certain way of life. I know he's, you know, sincere about it, but, and I certainly wouldn't want Fitzcarraldo to just disappear off, off the face of the earth, but it is, you know, to use the word of the times, it's, it's certainly a problematic situation <laughs> to uh, make any sort of movie in this environment. And you, even if they're paying the locals a king's ransom, it's still disrupting this, this situation that's already very much endangered and they're not treading lightly by no. any stretch i mean they're they're, they're cutting out, out a swath in the yeah. on this hill or this mountain to drag this ship over and so uh that's disrupting the landscape i mean it's it's a gear-esque yeah and here's my question i probably should have researched this before but instead i'm just going to ask you guys and hope that maybe you know the answer is that one of herzog's justifications for it is that like he struck a deal with the indigenous people to like basically give them the rights to the land when mm-hmm. the filming was done. Do we know if that happened? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. Tasha, this is why we need Tasha here. Cause I'm sure she, she would was... have like three different sources. <laughs> yeah. too. Wait, well, hold on. Tasha's not here. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. We haven't acknowledged that. <laughs> She's lost in the jungle somewhere. Um, the jungle of New York. <laughs> let me, uh, let me look that up real quick. Cause I think there might be an answer to that question. Well, after a research break, we don't seem to have an answer to that question. Um, but maybe one of our intrepid listeners. Yeah. yeah ma- maybe, answer. maybe so. And it maybe this is a fault of, uh, of Les Banks because there is some information in the film itself about Herzog and the productions sort of insertions in various, uh, tribal, conflicts, but I'm not really clear about what those were and how those were resolved or not resolved. Yeah, I had a similar confusion uh, regarding the the various tribal politics because there's almost like two phases of this production. Basically, like he he pissed off the Aguaruna Mm -hmm. uh, Indians and they like burned down the set. That was in 1979. Yeah, 1979, Mm -hmm. they burned down the camp, so they had to go upriver somewhere and 
establish a new camp. The changes in, in facial hair can kind of uh, <laughs> tell, tell you, you know, where you are in time in this film, yeah. too, which tends tend to leap back and forth fairly yeah. liberally. Yeah, that's true. So, yes, yeah, so that is definitely probably a, a source of the confusion. Also, just kind of dealing with a culture and political system that we are that is very different from our own that we are not familiar with and is at this point in time not particularly well codified i think like we're, we're, mm-hmm. kind, of, we're kind of dropped in at the beginning in the middle of a of a border war between peru and ecuador which we're not given the resolution to at all and you know i'm not super up on my south american history so i don't know but i, I guess there's just a lot of questions in this film kind of circling around the tribal politics that and no satisfying answers because that's obviously not what Blank is setting out to do but it is interesting that it is so integral to what's happening and yet so backgrounded in the narrative of this film I think. That's true and I mean I think it's maybe also true of Apocalypse Now as well which is another troubled production where I think the perspective of, of the filmmakers in both cases was we're just going to drop ourselves into this chaos where we don't really have all the information we need to help guide the production through in a a more seamless fashion Uh, and whatever happens we'll just deal with as the film goes on. I mean there's something kind of just deliberately recklessly spontaneous about the making of this film that almost obliterates any other like rational or moral or practical concerns. I mean, I think you can still have those concerns and, you know, admire the audacity. Oh, no, without and, question. And, and I, don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to paint over yeah. any of it. No, I didn't mean <laughs> to suggest that. I was just trying to say, you know, there is a recklessness mm-hmm. in the making of this film. Sure. So we're, of course, talking a lot about the making of Fitzcarraldo, which is the subject of, of this film. But Burden of Dreams itself is a piece of documentary filmmaker. And Les Blank is a significant practitioner of the craft. So what did you think of Burden of Dreams as a piece of documentary filmmaking? And uh, you know, what's, what Les Blank touches stand out for you? Besides all the Garlic is as good as 10 Mothers t-shirts on set, <laughs> yeah. there, there, were, there were at least two that I yeah, saw. I did, too. I did too. That was a good, a good eye. Um, not being very familiar with Les Blank at all, that was a Les Blank touch that stood it's, out it's to me. It's a subtle tourist stamp. Uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wonder if it was the crew tweaking him in, in, in a way or if it was I like free t-shirts I think they that's just, true that's yeah, true I think they all packed lightly <laughs> too lightly we're, we're reusing the, I reusing like the idea the of Blank just showing up with a crate of t-shirts of it from his last <laughs> movie you can, help, you can help date that, those scenes though because that movie came out in 1980 so they yeah. would probably have to be taking place around or shortly after that Certainly not before. Now, now I wonder if someone on the internet has pieced together Burden of Dreams more chronologically. Well, that's just it. That's what I was going to say. As, as a piece of this happened, then this happened, then this happened, uh, documentary filmmaking, it's it's not very effective. But no. boy, did I leave this film feeling like I had understood what it was like to be on the set of, of mm-hmm. Fitzcarraldo and what it's like to be around Werner Herzog and the different uh, situations um, you know they faced. And, and uh, sort of, if not all the you know ins and outs of, of local people's uh, a better sense of you know what their experience was watching this happen and 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 how they were you know exploited a little bit um uh, while making this film a little bit a little bit yeah but uh, yeah as as a uh, impressionistic not even impressionistic but as as a captured experience of what this film was and the people behind it and the passions that drove it and and the perils uh, behind it uh, it's, it's pretty peerless yeah and for for everything that has been said about the sort of confusion in this film about the various tribal politics, I, I do admire that Blank kind of takes some time to highlight and engage with the culture of these indigenous peoples. We get that kind of extended sequence on the Masako and how that kind of informs stuff that's going on in the Gringo camp. The the detail of like Klaus Kinski not 
wanting to drink because it's fermented with human saliva and he like replaced it with milk. It was just like, oh, be more of a jerk, Klaus, <laughs> you know, but also yeah. just that, that like being said. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if if you're going to like... If you're there. Yeah, exactly. Like, go for the full experience, man. <laughs> like, would that be the worst thing that Klaus Kinski has ever had to do? Right. I mean, like, he's both done and perpetuated plenty of crazy stuff. Yeah. But, and then there's also like that interesting scene with the two sisters arguing over oh, the husband and just kind of like seeing that everyday drama play out and it, like within this much bigger drama that, that Herzog is orchestrating, like just seeing those little small personal humans stories going on within there mm -hmm. is I, I think a really interesting touch and kind of adds to that not not quite you are there but you, you're getting kind of a sense of the full picture um, by just like seeing little bits of that picture yeah, just observational details mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah I mean I, I guess I would push back slightly against what Keith was saying despite my confusion a little bit over some of the tribal politics and a lot of matters having to do with that I think that the, that the narration uh, is quite good and it does string together the footage it needs to string together mm -hmm. and gives us the information that we need um, the narration is crucial i think oh yeah it's yeah. Cru it's crucial and, it, and it's another mark it feels we got like it kind of a compromise like it's tacked on and Whoa. there's as little as you need but but you definitely need it no yeah. it's, i mean it's the, it's pretty ever present i think yeah. uh, it, you know, and it's a, it's a thing we talked about it with the war room too in the sense which didn't have no narration but in, in both cases i mean you're shooting on 16 millimeter you're doing it for a really long time uh, you can only shoot so much footage. So you, you're going to have some gaps, and those gaps do need to be filled in by the narration, which works. And the rest is, as you say, a nice collection of observational details, and that's kind of where the art of documentary filmmaking comes in, of just Les Bank finding not just the story, not just Herzog and his struggles in making this film, but um, also all of these elements on the edge of the story, on the edge of the set, you know, giving you an impression of what it's like really for the, for the natives to be sequestered <laughs> for a long time away from their homes and, and, and families and away from, from women and a lot, and for some of them. And it's just, it just gives you an impression of how hard it is for them and, and, and how much stress it, it puts on the production you know, psychologically. So that, that's all there in, in the filmmaking. And then it's just a pleasure to see um, as I've said, like before Herzog and, and his element, Herzog at play, you know, thigh deep in mud and him playing, playing soccer and him on top of the, the steamboat dot, you know, as it careens down river, ever, them filming on a, on a, on the ship as it crashes and there are injuries and him, them having to treat the injuries. And it's just like, it's so wonderful just to be a part of that filmmaking experience because this is, you know, one of the most notoriously troubled productions and i think it would all it would be that if we did not have a camera there to you know make history and make history that artfully so this is this is just kind of a, a very maybe the model making of film right is there any making of film that is more revered than burden of dreams uh, nothing comes to mind i also kind of wondered like how how it happened i, mean, I know herzog and blank were, were friends and ran in the same circles but uh to allow a, a film, another film crew onto your already troubled set it's it's mm -hmm. uh it's herzog not, was not, never not, anybody to run away from that's true but tension. it's not something, not something a lot of filmmakers would have in uh would have encouraged he clearly appreciated les blank's freedom to make 
the film he was going to make because mm-hmm. there are this isn't the most flattering possible portrait. <laughs> well, I mean, c- um, can we can we acknowledge that like on some level Herzog is enjoying this? The, yeah, the, the, the misery, like the the scene you talk about with the the steamboat crash, you know, mm-hmm. with him and Klaus Kinski, and, and they're just like yelling at each other yeah. and like talking about what happened, and like they're upset, but there's also kind of like an almost I call it a mania yeah. to the to the way they're acting, like they're energized, they're they're charged up by this, and I think there's definitely an element of that to Herzog as a person and certainly in this Mm -hmm. film and I think that probably informs his willingness to have this document. This is fourth I mean this was movie four of five that Herzog did with Kinski. Yeah. So he was used to working with because they liked with, each other so much. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know. They, and of course, and there was a you know a documentary that Herzog made later called My Best Fiend that was about his working relationship with Kinski and how, how stormy it was. Um, so he knew what it was, and I think actually the Burden of Dreams, from what I understand about it, Les Blank really is just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of how terrible Kinski was on that mm-hmm. set. Yeah. Uh, Kinski was a primary source of aggrievement for everyone involved. Yeah. And I don't know if that He's even comes... He's pretty marginal up. in the film. Right, right? he is marginal. Yeah. He has a couple of moments where he seems irritable, but there's not... I, I think there's a whole other level of things going on that just didn't make the cut. But uh, I think it's... I, I, I sort of like the... Well, my original vision for this film fell apart because Jason Robards got ill and Mick Jagger dropped out. I'll bring in Kinski. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he said in this uh, you know supplementary feature I watched later that he was thinking of casting himself mm. in the mm. in the lead role. He thought he would do a, an adequate job, <laughs> and a, a good enough job doing it. He would be credible enough to play the role himself. And he's actually been credible as an actor. If you look at him in Julian Donkey Boy, for example, the uh, Jack Reacher. Yeah, no, it's pronounced Jack Reacher. Uh, he was really funny on Parks and Recreation. Sure. Yeah, no, he, he knows. And that's fully the yeah. Werner Herzog in quotation marks. No, the, the full the full version of that is when he's in voice in Penguins of Madagascar playing, <laughs> if, I, if I recall correctly, a Werner Herzog-like documentarian. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I think there's there are layers to this thing. And, and I think and I, I think his whole career has you know borne out this idea of filmmaker as adventure. And uh, I think it's an image that he enjoys having. You know, he he just he he wants to kind of go out on that limb. I think he feels like that is artistically a valid and important thing to do. Um, and that you know, sitting in a studio making a movie that's just not his style. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you hear stories that Rescue Dawn was another production of his that was just mm. like people were starving on that set. Really, that's interesting because you think after a certain point you have enough studio system protections to, to prevent that from happening, but perhaps not? No, no, that was another That was mm. another one that uh, people went through. We almost lost Zahn? <laughs> almost lost Zahn. <laughs> Bale and Zahn, it was a tough shoot. So, so he's been doing this for a while. So I, I'm curious, I mean, we don't get a, a huge glimpse of it, but but uh, did, did, did seeing the footage of Jason Robards and Mick Jagger uh, make you want to see that version of uh, Fitzcarraldo just a little bit? I think so. I think I, I wouldn't mind a peek into the alternate universe where that film got got made. It's, it's, I mean, Robards, there are a few finer actors than Jason yeah, Robards. Yeah, I know. That's He's the thing. so good. He'd be so yeah. good. But, you know, apart from performance, Mick Jagger does not have the best <laughs> track record. And yeah. I, I, presumably this would be 
a better vehicle for him and, and than you know Free Jack or something like that. Yeah. But uh, no, it's it's definitely intriguing. Which well, which... I mean, there's no way Mick Jagger would have stuck around for three years in the in the jungle for, <laughs> yeah. to, to make this movie. It's kind of a, a non-starter yeah. of, a, of a thought experiment because yeah. there's like no like, way like, it could uh, possibly I got, I got happen. This, uh, tattoo like, you to put out you know I'm to go one on. of the biggest rock stars in the world <laughs> <laughs> well I guess I'll go play soccer with the indigenous people a little more you know. <laughs> that would be something yeah I, I mean I'm like not a Fitzcarraldo super fan so I, I can't really claim to be super curious about that version of, yeah. of, of it but you know the footage we see I mean Jagger's performance is committed yeah yeah I, I mean he's working on the tonal plane i would expect for for this movie yeah and herzog's like nobody else could play this part i'm just gonna eliminate right. from the screenplay yeah <laughs> it's exactly. just, it's, uh, it's over for me it has to be Jag- jagger if it's not jagger then we're not we're not gonna cast that role yeah he he says it was the biggest loss i've had in my career as someone who makes films was jagger leaving like but it, it is wild to think like but i can i can make the same movie without that role entirely yeah. it was so important <laughs> To the film, though I, I do I do fantasize a little bit about Robards as Fitzcarraldo because Robards is so good, uh, just as an actor generally. I mean, we only get just a tiny glimpse of him here, but you know, I have a certain amount of affection for Klaus Kinski and, and the very singular thing that he does. But I mean, Jason Robards is an is an actor, so I, I do kind of wish. He had not come down with some horrible, <laughs> life-threatening <laughs> illness. Um, it was dysentery, which is pretty bad. You don't really get a mild case of dysentery, yeah. do you? A mild case of dysentery, that seems like uh, a good place to wrap things up, just as it, <laughs> just as it was for uh, Jason Robards. Uh, so we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. Our last episode on The Matrix and Ghost in the Shell brought a couple of responses on The Matrix and a voicemail on Ghost in the Shell, which was a nice reminder for me that Ghost in the Shell is a thing that exists. (laughs) Uh, So let's start with the emails first. Christopher from Lexington, Kentucky, home of the Residence Inn, my family and I stayed at one night, (laughs) wrote a long email about The Matrix, cyberpunk, and body horror. Keith, do you want to read an excerpt for us? Sure. Christopher writes, So I watched The Matrix again the other night after not having seen it in quite some time. I, like you, found it on the whole just as exciting and fun as when it first came out. I still found the special effects really cool on the whole. The only exception really were those totally CG shots, which do seem to show age. I think this is one of those films like Jurassic Park that took such care with its effects because they were so new at the time that they remained strong, even as copycats try to do the same thing. The only issue I really have with The Matrix, and it was the same when I first saw it, are the attempts at profundity that it strives for from time to time. This is especially true in the long speeches or philosophical gobbledygook Lawrence Fishburne runs through. And if I cannot be intrigued or interested in what Fishburne is saying, then there really is a real problem there. I think the issue here is one of over-explaining. That is, the philosophical considerations about the nature of reality and what makes us human, etc., etc., are in the film already. They are built into the very concept that the film is based on. Therefore, when Fishburne does go on and on about it, in a way that does not really make that much sense a lot of the time, it seems that either A, the directors do not trust the audience to be able to recognize what they are doing, or B, they want to appear to be more deep or profound than the film can actually bear. Either way, it is the only thing that does not really work in the film for me. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, he's describing to me the sequels. (laughs) Really. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I get where he's coming from. I think I would resist 
that kind of here's what we're doing explanations in many films. I don't in this one, and I don't really know why. Maybe I think that, that it's laid out in such a cool way. I mean, it, it shows and tells at the same time. It's it's not just an information dump. And I think the concepts, I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I won't speak to the profundity of the insights here, but I think they do walk you up to these really interesting philosophical concepts that uh, uh, that play out in the movie. And I'm not sure it would be i think it would be a little more muddied if they didn't so in theory i'm agreeing with everything he's saying but in practice i think it works in this movie i don't know about you guys yeah i it it doesn't really bother me either and i say that as someone who listened to a lot of clips of morpheus uh pulling clips for that episode (laughs) but i think it works with morpheus's characterization which is kind of like a sensei figure I, I guess to maybe pull from one of the genres influencing the the matrix and just like he is uh, neo's guide through this kind of mind expansion you know and he's telling these things to neo and by extension of course he is telling them to us as well but i think if what morpheus is trying to do is to get neo to free his mind in his own words like it makes sense that he would want to unpack the philosophical meaning behind what he is having neo do what he is asking neo to do yeah it doesn't really bother me i I certainly see it like i I certainly see that if it is something that bothers you that it would stick out but i think i think fishburne's performance does a lot Mm -hmm. to bring it across and just kind of the tone of the movie so you know i respect your position christopher but i i don't fully agree with it i'm afraid yeah i mean i I think again that it's much more apropos of the of the sequels which were guilty of just sitting you down mm-hmm. for a while and you know in front of a bunch of monitors and, t- and telling you what the what you're really movie. hung up on that monitor shot I <laughs> well i think it's, it's like it's so the central moment in that movie i should add also that we promised you an email that was going to be get into cyberpunk and body horror yeah. did, not, did not deliver so christopher's full email will be on the facebook site he actually mentioned existence yeah uh, mm. before before listening to keith recommended in the second part <laughs> of the episode so um prescient christopher is... had a lot to say about the matrix which we love yes, and we, we will definitely post all of it on on facebook For i should sure. say also that friend of the podcast uh clint worthington pointed out that that in the, in the list of of similar films around the same time we forgot to uh, mention Dark City, which came out a year before. I, my head was stuck in 1999. That was the year before. But it's another good companion piece uh, yeah. to this one, too. Clint is co-host of the Alcohol Hollywood podcast, which you've sometimes, been, sometimes been I've been on it. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So back when the Wachowskis made The Matrix, they were billed as the Wachowski brothers, Larry and Andy. They have since come out as trans women, Lana and Lily Wachowski. Uh, we talked a lot on the episode about the fluidity of identity that's run throughout their work before and after their transition. And listener Kevin wanted to share his own eureka moment with The Matrix. Genevieve? Kevin writes, I just wanted to share a realization I had rewatching The Matrix for the first time, knowing it was made by two trans women. One thing that stood out to me was the use of names in the film. It's made clear that Neo, Trinity, Morpheus, et al. are not the birth names of these characters, but rather new names they took on either as hacker personas in The Matrix or new names they chose as free people. Birth names go unmentioned throughout the rest of the film, save for one recurring example. Mr. Smith insists on referring to Neo as Mr. Anderson, primarily as a signifier of his literal-mindedness, but it also serves as a demeaning insult. It's easy to see parallels with the trans experience of choosing a new name once you come out, establishing your correct gender identity and the struggle coping with the use of your dead name, which can be really hurtful. It's little details that are richer in hindsight, and I was really fascinated realizing that. Thanks for reading my letter. Love your show. 
I love that insight. No, um, me too. And I, I mean, I always just took those names, Neo Trinity and Morpheus, as a nod to the hacker element, mm-hmm. and, and hackers always use aliases. And I don't think we could say it was intended uh, in, in, in that uh, way, given where the Wachowski siblings were in their mm-hmm. experience at that point. But it is fascinating to think about it uh, in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, uh, these are the sorts of things that filmmakers may, again, not put there in, intentionally, but which are part of the texture of the film. It's yeah. a, you know, so, so uh, and uh, I think we can look back on you know not just the matrix but also the bound and uh, a lot of other things that they made pre-transition and see a lot of these themes emerge so uh that was a good email finally we have this voicemail from bob voicemail yeah who offers some insight into the empty shell that is ghost in the shell hello next picture show this is bob and i'm calling about ghost in the shell you guys are so right that it has a great look but that without a real heart the visual work is wasted The opening scene and the stuff immediately after it is amazing, but it doesn't build towards anything. So when you get a misstep like the spider tank, which, by the way, looks like something that would get stepped on in a Godzilla sequel, then there's nothing to fall back on. Your mention of the original singularity ending points up to me that the movie should have gone more into the major's head, because that's where the real battle is, and the perfect opportunity to do that was the deep dive sequence. The Gishabot is everything the major doesn't want to be. She's programmed to degrade herself while the major is so dignified. And she murdered the people she was supposed to serve while the Major protects people. Having their minds merged should have been this incredible, complex, revelatory, existential experience, which maybe it was on a visual level, but I mean, on a plot level. But what we see looks like the cutscene you'd get after losing a zombie video game. And from that point on, it seems like the film steadily loses its individuality and sleepwalks into something halfway between Eon Flux and Underworld, but maybe even less memorable than either of them. When the Major jumps off the building at the end, it feels like a tedious, pointless repetition of something that was once cool, which is kind of the whole film in a nutshell. A ghost nutshell. Well, thank you for ending on that uh, pun, Bob. We, yeah. we really appreciate it. I, <laughs> listening to that voicemail, I was like, oh yeah, the gay Shabbat, which, <laughs> God, now, now that it's been a couple of weeks, I remember yeah. even less about that movie. But I, I do think that's a kind of an interesting solve for one of this movie's many, many problems. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the geisha. Yeah, it's it's fun to it was fun to listen to that voicemail again, just to be reminded that Ghost of the Shell is a movie <laughs> that I saw once. Um, and I think he's I right. Geisha bot. Geisha was pretty cool. It, it, yeah, definitely yeah. It looked cool. But he's talking about like the deep dive sequence, sure. yeah. which you know, as as he said, and I, I think as we said about most of the film, like looked really cool and was like cool conceptually, but didn't really mirror the narrative in any interesting way. Mm. And and inciting films like. Aeon Flux in Underworld, I think, puts the film pretty close to its proper level in the sense that it does <laughs> look cool, but f- it feels, you know, like a videotape that's been recorded over three or four times. It's it's very worn out and not fresh and not anything that really sticks to the ribs at all. And I think that, that speaks to the absence of, of real substantive ideas. I hope we keep getting Ghosts in the Shell feedback every week just to keep reminding us that, that <laughs> it existed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Ghosts in the podcast. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion.
And that wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in the lost city of Z and compare and contrast how the adventurers in both films make their way through nature. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be using a primitive pulley system to drag ourselves out of our chairs.